0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome to the New Books Network. My name is Brittany Edmonds, and I'm very excited to welcome our de- our guest today, uh, Dr. Russ Castronovo. Uh, he's going to be talking with us today about his newest book, American Insecurity and the Origins of Vulnerability. Welcome, Russ. Thank you, um, and it's wonderful to be here, and I, I look forward to our conversation today. Yeah, so, I mean... The first thing, I always like to sort of begin these interviews by just sort of letting the audience kind of bask in your book in a kind of broad manner. So I wonder if you could give us a kind of elevator pitch for American insecurity and the origins of vulnerability.
0: Sure. Last time I checked, an elevator pitch is about 30 seconds to a minute. So I'm going to try to. um, (laughs) It's
1: a long elevator.
0: (laughs) Yeah, Um, I'll make it shorter. So. You know, I think the easiest way to think about it is for your audience is that today there's a lot of talk about securing the border, right? And that seems to me seems to be a kind of a, a, a recent phenomenon, but I wanna suggest that it's a permanent feature of, of governments. And that is the case that especially in, in US and early American context, that this notion of a constant threat justifies a state of security. And so what happens I think is that Americans in this situation, are deeply confected to the insecurity they want to tame and manage and mitigate, that we need the insecurity that we're trying to to vanquish. And I think this has really important consequences for how we think about, you know, democracy and freedom. And maybe we can get into some of those topics as we as we go on today.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I have a couple of thoughts just starting out. And I was kind of curious about this all the way through. And I think it might just be because I'm a I'm a more contemporary scholar, as you know. But I was thinking about, I mean, one, I'm curious about whether or not this is sort of u s. centric. I know this is a book about American um about American insecurity in particular. Um and then I was also sort of thinking about just my own sort of experiences with insecurity and how it, how it does seem like it's ramped up um sort of recently. And so you just said in your in your elevator pitch that it, this is something that's been in the country for a really long time. Um, but I wonder, um, yeah, I, w- I wonder what you think about, even like the last fifty years, if there's a kind of if there's been a kind of shift and if what you outline here in this book uh, about America in particular, has it has broader reach and range across a bunch of you know different kinds of government, et cetera, societies, et cetera
0: right. I mean, I think you're you're quite right to think that there's a particular intensity uh, that we have about security in the last uh, half century, right? we can think about, you know, and and it, uh, you know, from the Cold War, to the notion of like nuclear annihilation, which is probably like the most um, profound notion of existential insecurity we can have as a species to the technological advancements that have made us, you know, the subject of security, both the subject and object of security, right? You know, that we now have the capacity to, you know, surveil ourselves and others through our doorbells, through any number of modern, you know, conveniences that I don't really need to go into. But what I think is interesting is that if we say, that this phenomena is only of recent origin, then I think what happens is, is that we fail to investigate the initial bargains that we have made to let security into our lives, so we can protest, for instance, or or or, or dispute how much we want to allow uh, a corporation like Google or Facebook know about ourselves, right? That could uh, that could be a security threat to us. So well, we can talk about the border, but le- but that's only going to allow us to have those conversations. So I'm trying to have like a slightly. Deeper conversation, one that antedates and precedes those conversations, so that we can talk about, like, okay, where did those justifications from security come from in the first place?
1: Okay, yeah. Well, I'm going to be really curious as we continue this conversation, especially sort of you march through American history, you know, from you know the 18th century on forward um, about maybe like what the historical instances are that that whether or not they make Americans particularly obsessed with security. Um, and I know uh, you talk about liberalism a lot in here. I'm going to have some questions about that. But I'm just thinking about, like, don't we have, like, the most, like, security systems, like, for capital? I'm sure we do in the world, right? Like, you go to Europe, people don't have their own, like, personal security system. But that's, like, such a thing in America. Well, it is an American
0: phenomenon. But I know also that, you know, for instance, in a place like London, you know, with CC CCTV cameras everywhere. You could walk from one side to the uh, London to the other and have just about every single step of the way be reco- recorded. Now, what makes I think the U.S. exceptional is just how much, um, for instance, how many resources we dump into security. Those are financial, emotional political, right? So that's where we might be outliers. I mean, you can read in the sort of anti-China tone on the front pages of the New York Times about how you know uh, China is a, is a heavily surveilled society in terms of factories and protests and things like that. And I don't doubt, not um, uh, d- doubting that reporting so much, but just to say that, you know, I don't know that I'm trying to claim that America is in any way exceptional, to this, but I think that as we have particular intensities, they're especially racialized. They're especially, um, you know, and they have a long history of being racialized. So I think there are particular dynamics here that help us um, that, you know, need to, that we need to attend to. And what's so important is I think here, and why I brought up the example of China is that I think many Americans going back to that front page of the New York times are gonna say, well, of course, this is what it's like in an authoritarian state right? But not here in the, in the vaunted home of the of the free and the brave, right? But I want to suggest that there's this kind of like dialectical interplay where that, you know, that freedom and that bravery necessitates security in ways that compromise, you know, our ability to imagine, you know, a wide open future for ourselves.
1: So where I wanted to go next is uh, I'm curious about, um, I'm curious about the book's title, just because the word vulnerabilities kind of jumps off the page for me. And I was surprised that the book was so sort of in conversation with security studies. And also in the introduction, you seem to do a lot of work um, to talk about what it is that humanities and the study of literature in particular can contribute to that field. So I wonder if you could talk to me both about the origins of vulnerability, that that you don't take it in a therapeutic route. Um, and then also this sort of second question about um, what the humanities can can kind of give to security studies.
0: Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Um... The vulnerability part emerged very late for me, and it really became um, sort of the, the notion, I think, of how it was that vulnerability became structurally necessary to the project of the American social contract. Right. That is how vulnerability, whether it's notions of white vulnerability or vulnerability of of settlers on the frontier, how that became crucial to the creation of a security society, because there's historians have long suggested that because of its geographical uniqueness. The United States or America has enjoyed this idea of free security and that is that you know it's surrounded by oceans we don't have to worry about invasion by from Britain all the time after 1814 and there really isn't any um incursion upon the U.S. homeland um until the attack on, on the um, Hawaii territories on, on Oahu Pearl Harbor in 1941. So there's this like 200 years of free security but that seemed to me to just be kind of wrong when I was thinking about the internal dynamics of you know the United States, whether it's people being made to secure feel insecure because of financial panics, or because of the constant threat of slavery, or because of what does it mean to live in a multiracial society where you have a good growing and burgeoning black free population, or what does it mean to live, you know, on these borders where you're always in contact with indigenous people? So it seemed to me that that you know vulnerability was everywhere, and that. Rather than again something to be um, overcome, it became uh, a a feature, a, a something that Americans, you know, whether it's and you can see this a lot in the rhetoric, how there's a a kind of almost a loveful fascination with the idea of being vulnerable, because if you're vulnerable, then it justifies and allows for these continuous measures of security. So the idea that America is always under threat um, is uh, is a very useful and necessary. Uh, fiction that has a lot of roots in the reality of um, of civic and um, public emotion.
1: Yeah, I mean, I have a I have a quick question um, about whether or not you see like competing forms of, of vulnerability, and then sort of competing attachment to certain forms of security, um, and what that might mean for for how you approach. I mean, we're going to dive into some of your chapters, but for how you approach this topic. So you just named a couple of things like financial panic, slave revolts, burgeoning sort of free black population or um, sort of attack possibly or sharing borders with indigenous nations and peoples. And so I'm curious, I mean, clearly those populations also have claim to America, but also might have different ideas about vulnerability and also security. So I wonder what that entails. I wonder just what that entails for, for this study. Yeah, I mean,
0: you're right. I think that there are many different um, emphases on, um, on security. And we talk about it in different ways today, right? There's, you know, food security, climate security, financial security, military security, national security, right, all of which has us on edge. And some of these, as you're right to notice, Brittany, are, are more acute than others. What I think is, um, think, and I wasn't so much interested in breaking down sort of the different types of security, although I do that at points in my books, as thinking about sort of the overall effect that security consciousness has upon us, and if I may use a an example that's um, uh, a very Wisconsin example uh, where you and I are located, um, and this is how I kind of think about how security works in, in our minds. So when the when the when when it gets really cold out, then I I, I feel that my brain, my my mean my, my like you know I, I hate losing my scar from my my. Um, my gloves and my hat. And then, so I'm always kind of for like six months out of the year, I'm trying to figure out where are my gloves? Where are my hat? And that's like, I feel like all my brain is doing. And then the minute like we get that one spring day and it's gonna be warm again, I feel like I no longer have to worry about where my gloves are. Have I dropped one at the gym? And then all of a sudden I feel like my brain is kind of opened up again. Right. And I have all this free time and space and to think about other possibilities. And I kind of feel that's what security is. Security is like this thing that's with us all the time. And we spend so much time thinking about it, so much time devoting our energies to it, so much time worrying about it, that we are foreclosing other political possibilities for ourselves. So I think that what happens is we get more security. And I just wanna be really clear here. We need security, right? I don't think at any point in this conversation, you're going to give me your uh, bank account details or tell me your password or tell me what your pin numbers are, right? Those security is really important. But I think that we need to kind of readjust the relationship between security and democracy. I think we have, a overactive sense of security and an impoverished sense of democracy, right? And, and you know, um, um, after the attack on 9-11, you know, this might be the earliest version of this book. George Bush gave a speech in which he said it was really important to secure freedom, right? Freedom was something that needed to be secured. And I was thinking about that as a particular type of contradiction. Like, well, once we secure freedom, make it invulnerable to decay or attack or erosion do we still have something that can be called freedom so at that level you, you can see that I'm trading in kind of at times certain abstractions certain kind of political theoretical ideas and yet you know and I, and I know that we're gonna get into it a lot of the book is grounded in like historical episodes about like you know uh, Black abolitionism or you know white settlers on the frontier or in the gothic novel, so it's these kind of um I am making big pronouncements, but I really do think that I have tried to um uh give them a foundation in the historical specificity of um of of culture, and that's where the humanities come in for me right you know the, the humanities are exemplary I mean that is they provide examples, they help us think through some of these these thorny questions, not just so much as a ratification of some big idea, but to kind of search out the um the nuances. So you know, I'm a literary scholar. So what literature helps me do is think about security in material and embodied forms.
1: Okay. Yeah. Well I think that I think that launches us into to thinking about like to getting into the meat of your book. Um it's separated into two parts. And I want to focus on the first part where you're kind of laying out some like presses for us to some just some 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 axioms some things for us to think about and so it's called contradictions and contours your first part um and in that first chapter i think you have what you have yes the contradictions of security and 13 propositions and so i don't want us to to obviously dig into all 13 of those but i wonder if you could tell us about what what you mean when you talk about the contradictions of security because i think you're right we are kind of you know we're getting into the abstract and yeah, I wonder for our listeners if you could if you could ground that. Like why is it such a contradictory thing? You say that we need it, but we're a little too invested in it. When we're too invested in it, we lose freedom. But it seems like a little bit of it's necessary for a thriving democracy. So I wonder if you could just tell us a bit about some of those those contradictions, yeah, I
0: mean, that's this was kind of the core of the book. and you know, uh, you know I've written a few, a few other books prior to this. and you know, I think, if I may say in those other books, i you know, it wasn't until like the book was published and it was all done. And years later I figured out, oh, that's what that book was about, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you it's like I've spent, you know, five years writing a book about, you know, uh, abolitionism in the United States and reform. And then like only later do I figure out what it's about. But this book, you know, I was able to kind of, and I think the pandemic enabled, enabled this, I was able to hit pause at one point and kind of gathered all together. And then I was trying to write an introduction. I re- And I realized that I had these kind of propositions that I had been able to adduce from the book. And there are these things that are contradictory. You know, I wrote these theory, uh, they are kind of conflictual with one another. Um, you know, I wrote these kind of theories of security. And, um, you know, like the first one is that security depends, or the second one is that security depends on fear. And We've talked a little bit about that, but that led me to this other one. And this I think is a good um, case about one of the contradictions that we're talking about. And they, these, I've tried for these pithy expressions, right? Because um, we always need to brand ourselves. And so one of them is terror is an effect of security, not its cause, right? So I think that we traditionally think that okay, there's some notion of um, an attack terror, whether it's the notion of, you know, there could be a, um, uh, an alliance between indigenous peoples and black peoples in the colonial era, and we need this ramp up security issues, or it could be that terrorists have flown planes into buildings and we need to kind of have something now called the TSA, and we need to invent the Department of Homeland Security, right? All in response to this. So it would seem that terror creates Security, right? The apprehension of terror creates security. But I wanted to reverse that and i and 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 suggest, well, wait, maybe terror or maybe security also produces terror. And I can give you a, a sense of how this is because what security asks us to do is we have to be v- vigilant anywhere at any time. right? And I think that's the notion of 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 how security is creating a series of affects that we cannot control. And its scope, and this is, the, I think, one of the major problems with it, its scope becomes the scope of the all. And think about this really clearly here. The way that we can do this, think about after the, the bombing of uh, um, Pearl Harbor, m- m- mere six weeks later, every single Japanese person on the west coast of the United States is placed into prison camps. Right, concentration camps. So what we have there is that security is creating its because of its target is so wide, because it's such an imprecise tool, it 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 can't make certain types of distinctions, then it becomes sort of a regime. Uh, of terror in that case, right? And so I think that's sort of one of the contradictions that I was trying to get at, was trying to take the notion of security, something again, that we want in our lives, that we should have in our lives, that helps us thrive, helps us, you know, create a world of possibility. And yet I wanted to kind of flip it on its head at times, not to say that we want to live without security because that would be, um, you know, a, a careless way to live. It would be irresponsible, but By flipping it on its head, just to allow us to examine a concept that I think has become kind of like a second skin to ourselves, right? And and, and to think about, like, well, do we need this? Do we need all these accoutrements? Do we need this apparatus that surrounds us in our daily lives and, sort of, most importantly for us, in our our consciousness, in in our in our consciousness of of ourselves as people, as political actors, as you know, um, as neighbors. As 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 people who inhabit the you know
1: this space. Well, you know, while you're speaking, I mean, I, that, that sends me in two directions. Um, the first is like, I'm curious if you could. I'm curious is, the, is there any form of security that doesn't occasion terror? Like, like in your example, I felt like that could just be like another person would still be like, no, but that's security. What you're calling terrorists. so that's just security. <laughs> like, and so I mean, so the two directions are on one hand, I'm curious, like. Are there any instances of security that don't occasion terror? And then the second would just be, you know, what's the definition of security? I think that's a problem I had while I was reading the book. And of course, because we're teachers, you know, my first thought is students who in who in the classroom think they're uh, in danger and somehow, and it's just like, we're literally just talking <laughs> like there's no effect. If we say the right things. Nobody's life's changed. If we say the wrong things, nobody's life has changed. Like we are like literally just like in a classroom in the Midwest.
0: Right. Right. Yeah, I think that's really good. Those are really good questions. And, and you know, to answer the first one about is there a form of security that doesn't create terror? Well, sure. Let's think about like financial security. Right. So how do I gain financial security? Well, you know, I can invest. I work. I save money. But then I start doing this thing where i invest in securities right that's what they're literally called right and those are to con- those are to help me diversify my portfolio they're a hedge against risk right that's why i do i invest in securities and maybe what i do right because i'm not trying to create terror i'm just trying to like live a good life right then i say wow you know there's these really interesting mortgage-backed securities right and then and they're going to be really cool because i can buy part of them And that's gonna and it's like mortgages spread across the economy right because they're financial derivatives and that's going to insulate me against risk right until it doesn't until 2008 happens and all that comes crashing down so the very kind of best laid plans about like i feel really secure only heightens how much you know i'm sort of exposing myself right Um, And and I think that's the, that's the question here. So even things like climate security, right? You know, we don't want to live in a world where like, you know, the levees are constantly being breached in New Orleans, right? You know, n- nobody wants that. But what's interesting to me is that you know that even the notion of climate security is something gets studied by the US military, right? Because the climate itself becomes an actor, right? In sort of a, 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 a in terms of like weapon systems, not that anybody can, can control the climate, but we can think about how the climate plays into military options. And so we all want this type of security. Yeah, I think it kind of, um, you know, can, can quickly unravel. And so you're asking about, this question about well, what is the definition of of security? And then we need to really, really clear that it looks like different things to different people, and it's variable, right? Um, you know, we can think about how, you know, the example that that makes up a you know a big part of my book is is the census, right? Um, and you know, every ten years there's a federal census, and I start looking at these since 1790. And you know this is great stuff, right? Because what the United States says, look at we're like a burgeoning population, right? We're look at all this labor and biopolitical power we have, and the growth of our population and our and our exports, our imports, the n- amount of labor power we have is is incredible. But then people start to notice this thing with the census. Hey, you know what's growing every year as well as the black population and it's the free black population. So the very thing that was supposed to allay Americans, right? And give them a sense of their national power, you, you know, in contrast to European powers, right? We have, um, you know, such an incredible labor power. In fact, one of the things that's just really interesting is that um, in this book, I talk about this moment, I'll just say, I'll just diverge here for a second, digress for a second is that Ben Franklin was talking to these British guys about labor power, and he said, well, you know, or or about the power of having a large population. And he said, like, something like, you know, well, after he's trying to convince Britons, like, you know, you're going to really lose this war. So this is 1775 after Bunkers Hill, where the British suffer mass casualties. And he says something like, if you Britons think you're going to, like, beat the United States at this expenditure, of lives and military uh, uh, resources, you couldn't even like keep up with the population growth that's happening with the, with the babies that are being born every year. It's gonna take you too many, um, um, you know, uh, red coats, you know, dying on American soil to even keep pace with our population. So what, so why I say it looks like very different things to different people in, how, in terms of how we count um, and, um, I think what happens is, is that we experience this as, you know, in different settings too, like university settings, like in university settings, okay, you brought up security, like in the classroom. And it was just interesting to me, like you you went to like students, right? Like feeling maybe um, insecure because of a conversation. And we can talk about this, right? About the notion of safe spaces. I was thinking about, oh yeah, the classroom's really unsafe because this is where shooters come, right? This is where I'm gonna get shot, right? And so I'm just saying that this is, You know, especially in a a state like, you you know, um, uh, Wisconsin, which has concealed carry, although you can't bring weapons on campus. Um, So we even you and I thinking about the classroom and how we're going to understand security in terms of that classroom. We might have very different. And it seems that we do identification points about what makes for a secure classroom.
1: Okay, yeah. So is that that's what is that some of what produces all of the contradictions uh, in the propositions like. Uh, are these sort of overlapping definitions and needs vis-a-vis security consciousness? Right, and you can think
0: about like you know in our example, my example there, you know what happens to all the people that are caught in the middle between your example and my example? You know what happens to the students who are trying to attend the, the, those classes? Right. I mean, it seems to me that that when we are trying to privilege, you know, um, uh, safety, you know, we have to think about like, well, do we mean like a uh, physical safety? But we know, you know, in terms of trauma, we know in terms of effects of intergenerational, intergenerational trauma, we know about the effect of, of speech. We know these things can be injurious, they can uh trigger, you know, and reactivate types of trauma. So I think the thing is about um if we're trying to understand what makes a space safe and secure, um you know, people are always coming at this, you know, with their subject positions, you know, uh, um, in play, whether they acknowledge it or not, right? And so, um, you know, I could think that I'm the, you know, least secure person in the classroom because, you know, I'm the target, I'm the one standing up, but, you know, I'm also the one who has tenure. I'm also the one who is a full professor, right? So I think that we have to think about like what resources Get marshaled in terms of security. So just go with this example a little bit later, a a little bit more. You know, if if my if a university thinks that security is important, great. It might say, you know, what we want to do, we want to step up the police presence on campus. Another um, institution might say, you know, we think the security is important, and we would like all faculty with tenure who've been in the system for more than twenty five years to attend this seminar on how students feel safe in class. Right, so you can think about different sorts of resources getting used in very di- uh, in very distinct ways to ensure security in the classroom. Like you know, for me, it might be bullets for students. It might be you know um, um, you know for me protection against bullets. Not that I want them in the classroom, and for students, it might be and for you know good pedagogy. I want to make it really clear it might be being sensitive to how words and memories and images. Um, can, you know, be incredibly hurtful.
1: Well, I'm definitely seeing, you know, I will just speak, you know, from personally on the, the flip side of how that kind of security can produce a form of terror that I think I've been subject to from students um, trying to monitor the classroom space for themselves. Um, and so that's interesting, but I'm, I'm still, I wonder. I wonder if it would be useful for us to 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 go to the historical examples that are in the contours of security, or if we sh- or if we should uh, sit with another contradiction. What do you think? Um, well, because I'm interested there, in this, but uh, still for is me, a so curious I'm sorry. Go ahead. That... No, no, no. I was, I was just going to is say there that a contradiction
0: that... <laughs> it's all you. Is is there a contradiction that stood out to you?
1: I mean, they all kind of did, but I think for me, you know. It all feels abstract and then just how my mind works is like I'm looking for I'm looking for the thread to pull, you know, to try to unravel it. That's just my, I'm that person, you know? And so I'm always trying to think of the counter example. But what about security safeguards whiteness? That seems to me like a pretty, that seems like a pretty spicy one. It's on page 48. <laughs> I don't know if you wanna do the spicy one. We don't have to do that one. No, but. no, I think that's,
0: you know, that was like, um... One of the really important things that I was able to, to you know to recognize in this book, um, and it really is connected to a historical example for me here, which was that, you know, um Thomas Jefferson and his compeers thinking about um, um, black population increase, right? And so on the one hand, and this is something I chart in the book, men like Jefferson are callous, right? They are cool, cruel cool and calculating. And they are thinking about what the increase of a Black population, specifically a slave population, means to their bottom line, right? They are ebullient at times when they think about, you know, how they have an incredible um, a species of commodity like no other that will reproduce itself, right, under the most brutal conditions. And yet, they're also freaked out by the sheer notion of Black plenitude, of Black po- biopower that they see every day, right? And so what security was trying to do, and I really talk about this through the notion of, of this incredible cockamamie failed, but nonetheless politically potent form of security management in the 19th century, which was colonization, right? The colonized a free Black population to Liberia, So, that's where you would have that, uh, the very notion that you would have your private citizens working with government and philanthropic, and I put philanthropic in quotation marks, to come up with a certain type of, if we will, almost algorithm for trying to figure out how much of the black population needs to be siphoned off every year to create a stable, safe United States. So that's where security, you know, is acting on behalf of, of whiteness. And the thing about whiteness, of course, is, and you know this from your, you know, your work, and this is like, you know, what people famously like Cheryl Harris have have told us, so, you know, whiteness is kind of wrapped up with, with property. So it's about, you know, safeguarding white notions of property and safeguarding the people. That whites hold as, as property, making sure that property literally does not become fugitive, right? Literally does not escape. Literally does not revolt. And so, one of the things I think we can see is that so many of the security measures that were pioneered, and um, in, in in the U.S. and this is something that you know uh, I don't know if you've had her on New Books Network, Simone Brown, in her book on, um, so I think it's called. I think Surveillance and Blackness are in the title, so it's, it's a really good book, but she talks about how, they're, how you know, the very notion of a Black public presence in the United States created all these need for surveillance and security measures, such, for instance, the one that she talks about, and this is other, that historians also like um, Jill Lepore talk about, is that just in New York, right, when slaves were out at night and there were more than two of them, they had to hold a lantern together. Right? Because they had to be illuminated for the watch to see, right? The notion that um, and um, you know that this is that, that they somehow are suspect. And we can think about all the surveillance um, 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 policies today. And I think you can draw a line, and this is what Michelle Alexander does, you know, looking at in the new Jim Crow, she draws a line from thinking about a, uh, uh, you know, the specter of black and indigenous rebellion. In the 18th and and even in the 17th centuries, and how whites were feeling vulnerable to the prison industrial complex of today that keeps you know um, millions of of black men and and women I- incarcerated. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, I think so, from there it might be. Oh, sorry, go ahead. If you no, no please,
0: I'm, I'm ready for you this time.
1: Yeah, well, you know, I mean, from there, I think it might be useful to sort of jump into some of the historical receipts, that's what you call them. Um, you have mm-hmm. nine of them to talk about the contours of security. And I can choose here. Or you can tell one that you think is, is you know, particularly illustrative of, of something that we've yet to talk about. Um, but still, I'm looking for ways to, to try to sort of, I'm really curious still about this relationship between, you know, maybe competing forms of security between across different kinds of populations who are differently positioned. And then this other um, concept that you've brought in, which is democracy, about how it can sort of make more sense of that. Because you said our obsession with with security sort of clouds out um, the attention that we can pay to, to democracy. And so I wonder if one of these examples might might concretize for us, you know, the relationship between all of those things.
0: Yeah, were you thinking of, 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 of did you have one in mind or did, did you want to... I didn't,
1: I was gonna allow you to choose, but I, I can choose if you'd like, I mean, I I would love to hear uh, more about this 1837 example um, with Hawthorne and and Harriet Beecher still. Oh, okay, you know,
0: um, (laughs) know, that's good, but let's talk before uh, that. Let's talk, you know, for me, and this is where you asked me about the title of the book, The Origins. And this really was one of the origin points for me is 1755. And that's when Ben Franklin says this thing he says, those who would give up essential liberty to purchase a little temporary safety deserve neither liberty nor safety. And what was so interesting to me about this is that I had no idea of the history of this phrase. I thought it was, well, this is why we all should become revolutionaries, right? This is why we have to throw off Britain, right? And then I'm saying, well, he's not, why is he saying this in 1755? That's 20 years before. And it's true, Ben Franklin did say it in 1755, in 1775. He was like, yeah, we really need to get rid of the yoke of our, you know, imperial masters, right? And those people who would want to, you know, run into the skirts of England, right, for a little temporary safety, they don't deserve this American freedom. So he does say that in 1775. But what he's doing there is he's quoting himself. And he's quoting himself from 1755 when a very different context, when he's saying, you know those who would give up essential liberty. And by that he means is, my fellow colonists, those of you who would look to the colonial governor for safety, we need to ensure our own safety. And the way we're going to do that is we need guns. We need ammunition, and we need to defend our frontier against, um, you know, Indian attack. And there had been these things called um corpse displays in Philadelphia, where, um, when there had been marauding and rampages or massacres on the frontier, which we have to remember was were heavily slated to, um, uh, to uh, affect indigenous peoples way more than settlers. But when settlers suffered the consequences, what they did was they would fill wagons with those of the slain and drive them to Philadelphia and they dumped them on the steps of Independence Hall as a protest and say, we need we need safety out here. We need to have the frontier secured. You know, what's the Governor going to do about it? And Franklin was really clear about this. He said, the government is not going to do anything about this. We have to do it. And we want the Governor to, you know, authorize us to buy, you know guns and ammunition from uh, from Britain. And we also more than that, we want Britain to pay for it because we're securing the frontier for them. So you can see here in this early example, contest between Franklin and the settlers and the assembly on one side and the colonial governor on the other side. They're really thinking about who's going to have control over security. Is it going to be a single kind of sovereign figure, the governor, a single authority, or is it going to be something that's going to be, you know, decided by elected representatives? So we can see here we have the tussle of, you know, even that early example of how thinking about who's going to safeguard the frontier Is about democratic power. And I think what's really important to remember here, pinioned, right, between those two forces are indigenous peoples. So even as Ben Franklin is writing this letter, in which he feels he's come up with a stirring motto, right, those who would give up essential liberty, right, blah, 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 blah. He's also writing letters at the same date and time, advising people on the frontier how to hunt native americans with dogs and he emerged and he's you know really specific advice like he's even drawing maps like little like diagrams like here's how you corner them don't feed the dogs beforehand because they'll be hungrier you know to rip into the flesh of the land's original inhabitants so to me that example really gets at um uh, all those contradictions there about how race and democracy and security are kind of um, tangled up together, and this is like you know this is why I think what I found was so frustrating, and I think you know you're re- responding to this as well because when you said you want to take you know you have these nuts and you want to unravel it and pull on a thread right like i I kind of don't think you can and, you know it's the way that these things are kind of isomorphic with one another, and I think what I'm trying to do, you know really in the book is getting us to think about like okay, when I say security, how much am I saying race right, and when I say you know um safety you know how much am i saying other you know when i'm saying you know homeland how much am i saying you know them? so i think that's what i'm trying to do is think about how these things have become really coincident with one another in ways that we don't reflect upon often enough
1: Yeah. Well, i mean i think that was one of the things that i was curious about i mean kind of as a reader because it's like all right well okay like you know on one hand i understand that you're looking at this from the perspective of sort of American governance, right? And so the book has a certain inflection um, in its concern with security uh, studies. But on the other hand, I was thinking about like, okay, if, if security is so thoroughly racialized in this way, what does it mean when, when populations other than white people try to secure something? Um, and does it look radically different and is it bound up with the kinds of things you've just described and i you know i don't know for me it's like it's, hard, it's a hard thing to think about like you know when my parents set their alarm system are they guarding against black people especially or is it a, a kind of racially ambig- ambiguous other that's still nevertheless marked other maybe it's an economic other whatever um but I mean, so, so the just the sort of thorough racialization of it in this book, sometimes I was, I was curious about that because it seems to me, it's like, are we just talking about the people who lost a particular set of fights, you know, um, particular set of contests, and then using that as a way to, to define security um, historically, I, you know, I was just curious about that. I mean, so that's why I kind of, that vantage point is just not one that is my own, just because, you know, I'm a black person, there's things I want to secure. And I don't know that for me that for that, that is synonymous with, with race, um, even though it might be synonymous with certain categories of belonging that do, that are themselves racialized, which is just, I mean, that's, I mean, that's the history of, of human beings on the planet. Um, you know what I mean? And so I, I, that's, I mean, so I do think I, I struggle with that a bit. I was curious about, that. I was like, hmm, like, so for, for instance, I'm sure the slaves, enslaved people, despite being incredibly vulnerable to the folks who own them, um, you know, however wrongly, uh, I'm sure that they had forms of security that looked quite different than the forms of security that you kind of, you know, um, document in your book, like ways of modes of self preservation, ways of, you know, hiding food, you know, burying food. Um, you know, all, I'm just, all sorts of things. I haven't thought about this extensively, but I know they did, right? Because how could they not? They all had things that they valued, and as a community, they probably erected ways of, of um, ritualized ways of, of of preserving those things. Um, and so, yeah, I, I do think I tripped over that quite a bit because the vantage point is very much, and I get why, right? I get why your book's invested in the in the vantage point that it comes from. But yeah, that race and security, security in the other safety in the other—I don't know. That, that was a hard one, I won't, I'm not gonna, I struggled with that uh, in the book I, a little bit. Yeah, I think that's that's a good thing. I
0: think there are two quick things that I wanna say on that. One is that, so um, the first, and we can talk about this more is that, you know what I did for the second half of the book, I read every single issue of uh, Freedom's Journal, the first black newspaper in the United States. And it runs for about two and a half years from about 1827, 1829. And then actually I even followed it further when it kind of um, relocates to the colony of Liberia and Monrovia and uh, becomes a Liberia Herald. And so I was thinking about that. So that I was trying to think about what does p- black security look like in this, uh, in this world? And, and the other thing I did, and if we could talk for a little bit about like what forms of security did black people have or did they, were they invested in? Let's talk about Philadelphia in 1813 for a moment, if we can. So the War of eighteen twelve is going on. Philadelphia is the major center, along with New York, but even more so than New York but in terms of population size of 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 free black population as well as the fugitive population. The wars created um, a lot of uncertainty. It's made uh, um, uh, it's created a lot of mobility, and uh, white um, um, legislators are really worried that blacks are gonna come flooding into the city, especially enslaved, uh, formerly enslaved persons, right? And so they they say this thing, which is of course what they would do, they'd say, we need to have a census and we wanna count every single black person in the city. And then they they do that. But one of the things that they do after the census, and this is what's really important to me, is that there's a really large, or not there's a really large, but there's a, there's a sizable and significant black middle class in the city with people like James Fortin, Um, um, and Russell Parrott, and they've amassed property, right? And what the white people say is that, well, we actually wanna take your property in advance of Blacks coming to the city because they're gonna be indigent and we need you to support them. And Fortin and his um, other members of his class are irate. They're incensed. Um, And they write this really measured response to the white um, authorities in the cities and say wait you know basically you've been telling us if we want to be respectable people we should we should you know amass property that's going to give us certain privileges that's going to show our um uh that's going to make us respectable and now you're proposing to tax our property for the security of people who even haven't come here because the city doesn't want to you know have to um struggle with a a a, 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 a new population right entering its borders and so they're saying like and they're pointing out like here's a contradiction that you're pointing out it's like we are going to be we've created property. We, and they did this like Fortin was doing it because he was um he sold naval stores like uh, like uh, um fabrics for um uh, boats and uh, and you know tar and and things like that for the caulking of ships. And he's saying oh, this is crazy because the very property that I have to give myself financial security is becoming a source of insecurity for me. That is, you're going to seize. You're going to. You are seeing a problem with uh, migrants coming to the city. So, what is your response? Is you're going to tax and take my property, right? You've made what I've amassed insecure. So we have this notion here, I think, of which when black, uh, a black middle class, creates a certain amount of financial security, the very fact that they have security, right, that they have means, exposes them to predation. So that's one of the ways I would understand that it was erased, right? You have this capital, which is supposed to be, you know, like it you know, it, it should be like, you know, the, the market should be like a color-free zone, right? You know, it's like, you have wheat, I need to trade it for a jacket, let's do the trade, it really doesn't matter. But what we're seeing here is that F- Fortin, in this letter that he wrote, which he then later produced as a pamphlet, which was reprinted many times throughout the 19th century, we see him saying is like the very fact That I have something to make myself, my family, and my community secure has now made me a target. So what he saw was that there was a municipal tax that was going to be placed on the sheer fact of his being black.
1: Yeah, I hear you. I mean, I I do hear that example. This is good to talk through. Tell me. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I guess in that in that scenario, I'm thinking. I mean, if that's the worldview, then in what then in what scenario wouldn't wouldn't Fortin be sort of subject to predation, right? Um, so even, I mean, you know what I mean? Like in that in that period, even, even if he were indigenous, something else would be plundered, like his labor or whatever. And so to me, that's that's less a problem of his having um, some form of security and more just a, a product of, um, you know, the historical moment and its understanding of black citizenship. You know, so to me, it's like to say security. I mean, I don't know. I just, I think I still feel challenged by the sort of, trans-historical idea of of security sort of being racialized in ways where what it's always safeguarding is whiteness. I think it just it becomes hard for me to to understand that and to understand but I mean I I know that there I mean always there are going to be examples of racial terror in the U.S. that we can you know come up with to 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 provide um you know answer to whatever I might raise but if there still seems I don't know something something uneasy about that right like I don't know I'm sure if if those same white people really wanted to move some poor white people out the place, they would have done that too, you know what I mean? I, I don't think that that would raise hackles, um, in that current in that historical moment. And so I just it just feels you know I'm not saying it, like obviously the U.S. is a, a thoroughly racist country. I'm not <laughs> uh, historically um, and certainly in that time that you're speaking about. Um, but I don't I don't know. I just it's just I'm something I'm thinking through as you're talking through it. It's just you know, trying to wrap my head around it as an axiom.
0: I think the deal is, is that, well, let's imagine Philadelphia again, 1813, as I was saying, and we could say, yeah, I'm with you, Brittany, that there are probably some low down, irascible white people that, that, yeah, you know, this city would be better off, right? The city is going to be better, be, the city of brotherly love is going to have a, be a lot more brotherly and a lot more loving if we get rid of all the people owning grog shops and brothels for instance right you could do that maybe but here's the difference i think is that remember i was talking earlier about how the target of security is all right it doesn't make those distinctions because security is so often connected to biopolitical data right so what's happening is is that you have the notion of one of the things that I look at in my book, there's this really important tool of governments that comes into being in the 18th in the 18th and 19th centuries. And that's this notion of the population, right? Before that, it was just the people. But when you can break it down into the population, when you can be study things like their mortality, the amount of their, you know, how often do they reproduce? When do they increase? What is their labor power? How much, um, what proportion of them can be useful for, um, uh, uh, filling regiments and armies. When you start to study it, 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 the population, which is a st- which is a statistical um, quantity, and let's not forget that the word "statistical" comes from um, you know it's a French. It comes out of a French or a, Ger- a French French use and then German use about the study the science of the state, the study of the state. And so, what I think happening is I'm just trying to say is that for much of the 18th and 19th century you know, blacks were understood as a population. And if what I would say here is that the problem and it, or not the problem was that, and this is maybe is a little too, I don't know how new, if this is too nuanced for what you're saying is that the need was to understand blacks as a population so that you do not have to think about them as a people, right? Because a people does all sorts of things. A people does all the things that you're saying. They evade, they mass together, they, you know, find alternatives. They take, you know, side streets. They do all the things that you know are a little bit uncalculable. But a population, right? If we can say, well, there's this segment of black property owners with more than, let's say, five thousand dollars in property that they own to their names, and we can do something about that and tax them. Well, then you've kind of have a statistical problem to the to a statistical solution to the problem of the people by, I think, construing them as a population. So for me, it's about a certain type of biopolitical management that becomes really present um, in a, you know, in a colonial, um, in, a, in, a, in a world with a strong colonial inheritance
1: and practices. Yeah, you no, know, that makes that makes perfect sense to me, um, especially, you know, as you said, in the 18th and 19th centuries, I think I'm always extrapolating to, to more contemporary times because that's where I'm more, knowledgeable but definitely that makes that makes a makes a, a great deal of sense and especially you know remembering that your examples are very early 19th century 1813 you know I can imagine that you know if I'm a white person I wouldn't want any black people to be in the middle class why aren't you slaves you know it's like how did that happen so um, no I get it I do I do I think I was struggling more abstractly I think but but no that example does clarify and what you just said about a population versus a people, um especially uh, in terms of sort of dominant thought at that time is super useful
0: good you know, could um i was talking about this book at um a local library and you know I, I love having the opportunity to do that and at the end of the talk um an elderly or an older gentleman raised his hand and said you know I'm curious about all your examples it seems to me that you're suggesting that white people have a monopoly on terror
1: Thank <laughs> you. And he was, little, he, was, he was a little concerned by that, by that but I was saying something
0: Aww. maybe um, yeah. um, uh, not flattering to white people. And I, and I, you know, my response to him was sort of the flip side of what i uh, saying to you is that, no, of course, white people didn't have a, a monopoly on terror, but what they had was they had the institutions behind them to enact terror. And those institutions are called the law. They're called the church. They're called, you know, military enlistment. They're they're called those things. So, you know, um, you know, you know, the crime, You know, but, so I think that's important to think about that. And 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 for me, you know, just in our response now, like, just the notion of the population, which you know, come, which you know, the French philosophers are using sort of in the, in the in the 1700s, and then in the 1800s, which which migrate to people like Franklin and Jefferson, and then um, it becomes a really important management tool for the state. And that's what you know um, fuels the whole idea of you know of, of involuntary slash voluntary migration that was supposed to be colonization to Liberia, which I found out in writing this book, the American Colonization Society, um, which had many different iterations. You know, after the Civil War, they asked for blacks to become um, uh, self-deporting, right? That they could pay their own way now. And they did not officially disband until nineteen sixty five. So it's kind of interesting. These things have long histories, I think.
1: Well, on that note, I wonder if we could we can move kind of to the second part of the book, and I know we've been kind of in and out of it, but we do still have a bit of time. Um, I'm curious about uh, the relationship between liberalism and security. And I had never heard about the the book that you that you mentioned in your in your third chapter, the Doctor O's Little Brother. And so I wonder if you could tell us about about that novel, but also about this relationship between um, liberalism and security. Yeah, um, um,
0: Cory Doctorow is a um, really interesting figure. Um, He writes on tech, he writes on um, on, um, issues about the commodification of the internet. And he also writes really um, kind of fast paced uh, teen novels. Right. And so there is this one teen novel he wrote that I've taught called Big Brother. And then he has another one that is a that has a title. Uh, I'm sorry for getting the name of it. It's a, it's the sequel to Big Brother, Little Brother. It's called um, has Homeland in the title. Anyways, it's just about this idea, this book where this kid, I think it starts off. He says, I'm a 16 year old who lives in San Francisco's Mission District. And that makes me one of the most surveilled people in the world. And he talks about like, you know, he's feeling it as a 16 year old, as like, you know, the school monitors, his school has gate recognition software, the idea that you can profile someone based on their gate, they have scanners, they have biometric tools. And this is, and this is like, you know, not um, unheard of in, in American high schools. But then there's an attack in this book on the San Francisco Bay Bridge, and he gets caught up in a homeland security operation. And he is trying to explain, to narrativize in this book, why privacy is important. And he uses a teenager for this because, and this is a teenager's trying to have, you know, he's trying to have his first sexual experiences, right? He's, you know, chatting with his friends online and he's, and he's working against the presumption, which is this. People say that, like, you know, you only need privacy if you need, if you have something to hide, right? And And the idea there is that, You know, if you're just a normal 16-year-old white kid living in San Francisco's Mission District, you know, you really don't need privacy unless you're doing something that is unbecoming or untoward. But for him, he, and this is something I just noted in the book, was that anybody who talks about security and the need for privacy immediately goes to the same place, the bathroom. And they talk about what would happen, and this is Cory Doctorow's example, he says, imagine every time you wanted to use the bathroom, you had to do it in a glass cube suspended above Times Square. Now tell me privacy doesn't matter. And so I was interested in that argument, but also I was interested in the idea about why is it that people who talk about privacy keep coming back to this idea of you know, bodily functions, to this notion of, of waste, of 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 that type of very intimate space of privacy, and I think what that does is, and this is, and that's like liberalism, right? Liberalism is like, hey, I don't want to have the government interfering in my life, right? You know, I, I want to have the freedom of movement. I want to have the freedom to to converse, to you know, watch what I want, to eat what I want, and to use you know the bathroom in a way that's 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 you know not um, um, suddenly become a spectacle, and. Um, and so, you know, he's trying he's battling with that. He's kind of torn over that notion of, of of, of a kind of very type of intimate freedom. But the problem I think there, and this is what the whole point of the chapter is, is just to say, well, that's great. But then when we do that, have we retracted freedom to where then it is no broader, no more capacious, no more spacious than the four walls that make a lavatory, right? What does it mean that when we contract freedom to the to the to the side of the bedroom, right? So what I want to say is that yes, we certainly want to have privacy, absolutely. But unless we couple that with a robust sense of public freedom, then we really have made, you know, going back to Ben Franklin's, um, uh, ex- uh, you know, uh, infamous words, or you know, we really have made a bad bargain. We've given up essential liberty for a little temporary privacy, a little temporary
1: safety in within these four within these four walls. In our time that we have left, um, I'm not sure where you want to go. I don't know if you want to talk about Gothic storytelling and sort of aesthetics of overload, uh, or if you want to talk, we've already talked a bit about the Jeffersonian Trembling chapter. Um, you talking about Jefferson's sort of fear of the black population increase. Um, but I might also be interested in some in sort of questions that might extend out of your book. Uh, so how are you feeling, Russ? Um, uh, or would you like to go? No, that's good. You know, because what I'm trying to do
0: right now is is um, extend out of my book. I mean, right? I just don't keep rereading it. That would be pretty <laughs> a sterile exercise. right? I'm trying to, you know, I wrote this book, and I'm wondering, okay, where is it? Gonna, where am I going to get to next? What is what is it? You know, I I think of it as like a, uh, as a trampoline, right? Where where am I going to bounce to next? So let's talk about like where it is that we might go with like some of the critiques and analysis and and you know the um, deconstruction of security that I'm trying to do here
1: what if, what if we what if you were to extend your book um, into you know the the later 19th century uh in the 20th century right um, and let's say you were to take up you know sort of significant uh historical events um like let's say you were to think about, sort of housing projects even, right? Like if that were like a historical site where you're thinking about something like security and housing projects when they were first introduced in a sort of site of promise for working class black people. I mean, they really were a site of promise um, that quickly turned into a kind of, as we all know, a kind of nightmarish, uh, quite dangerous situation just due to sort of governmental neglect. And so I wonder, you know, and that's just one example, but I wonder if you were to take, if you were to just extend the, this book into into the 20th century even, and like really do the kind of careful um, sort of literary and cultural and historical work that you do for the 18th and 19th centuries. Um, do you think any of your propositions would change? Do you think some of, yeah, I'm I'm curious about that because black people have moved into a kind of more sturdy citizenship, maybe not perfect, but definitely sturdier. There are new sort of populations that sort of um, enter into the U.S. in greater number and thrive or not. Um, And there are, I think, different issues of security afoot, especially as we sort of close out the 20th century and and enter into the 21st. And so, yeah, I do wonder, uh, you know, if the book, if this were just, you know, maybe 300 pages longer. If this (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, uh, what, what what would you what do you think you might have to tell us? I know that's a huge question, but I'd I just be I'd be curious to hear. Great. Hey, so I'm gonna
0: answer this in, in two ways. Okay, nothing would change, and everything would change. <laughs> so here's how nothing would change. Um, early on in one of my historical receipts, I look at the um alien sedition acts. I think it's 1793, 1794, which are you know, response to the notion that European radicals are coming to the United States and they're unhinging uh, civic discourse with all these Jacobin ideas, and it's really something proposed by the Adams administration to cut down on, um, and cut down on internal dissent. And there are a number of trials, and um, and you know, Democratic Republican uh, uh, Congress people are put in jail by the Federalists who control the courts and the system, right. What's interesting to me is that this legislation, when Franklin Roosevelt issues executive order 90666 to turn the Japanese, he cites the Alien and Sedition Acts. When Trump was proposing a a Muslim ban, one of his legal commenters said, well, you know what? The Alien and Sedition Acts from 1793 and 1794 are still on the books. And there's precedent. So again, we can think about how nothing would change. Like we can kind of fast forward right to the 20th century and say, like, yeah, a lot of the ways that we're that we're thinking, the things that are wrapped up in our DNA as political citizens, you know, come from the very types of, of conundrum that I'm talking here. And that's what why the book is is really important. I didn't just want to write this historical study that's filled with antiquarian information, right? It's really to try to think of, okay, this is where we are. How did we get here? And if we can figure out how we got here, then we have the possibility of going somewhere else, right? So that's my first answer. Then the other answer though, of course, is that everything would change. And that's because, I mean, even as this is is, is somewhat predicted by the chapter that I have on forms of Gothic information, which is something that's very conversant with uh, media information, you know we are just not ready. You know we certainly weren't ready in 1850, and I don't think we were ready in 1950. And you know we probably won't be ready if by 2050 for just this incredible tele cyber, you know, media onslaught that we live with every day, right? You know the we're, we're, you know there's just a c- continual influx of 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 information that you know, is overwhelming to us. And it's not just so much, you know, in the book, I was trying to think about what happens when we deal with information overload. And that's where we actually, one of my favorite, I think my favorite proposition is, or, or, or axiom from the book is, um, there's never enough information, only too much, right? But I think what the book, what one would want to wrestle with in different ways is, how is it that a new, incredibly sophisticated, heavily commoditized mediascape and technosphere how does that change the conversations that we have about security and for me it would really i don't know if it would change so much what i think about security and insecurity but it would change the notion of vulnerability for me because i think what we're all supposed what we now are realizing we're vulnerable to is you know it used to be that you know i you know i I produced a text, right? You painted a painting, you know. Somebody else, you know, produced a different type of image. We were creators, right? But now I think there's this. We have a much more keen sense, much more exposed sense that we're suddenly now vulnerable. We're exposed to images. We're exposed to constant, you know, uh, unspoolings of sound, right? We're exposed to um um just this uh, the, you know the world that's clamoring for our attention so i think that's what i would want to try to do and that's sort of what i'm attempting to do actually is to you know and what i've been reading around in now is trying to figure out what does it mean when the very sources of like aesthetic pleasure historical understanding information um gathering have left us you know almost without any shielding whatsoever, you know, I feel it's like we're all on the the Star Trek Voyager or the Enterprise, right? And our shields are down to 4%. And the next like, you know, uh, set of photon torpedoes, which can be, you know, anything from the Marvel Universe, you know, any sort of, you know, um, um, you know, um, new media sensation, you know, from Taylor Swift to Macklemore or whatever, all these things are coming at us. And I just don't know that I know how. I mean, I think we know how to respond, but I'm not really sure how to understand that response yet. So I'm trying to think about what does this new and heightened sense of vulnerability mean. I mean, just want to point out, like, you know, even our genes now, right? Our DNA code is vulnerable, right? I mean, isn't that what the story of Henrietta Lacks tells us, right? That you know, so uh, there's something, you know, um, and you know, I have just been I've been reading a lot of Ishiguro, you know, who's wonderful, right? I mean. It, and, and 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 what Ishiguro seems to be telling us is that, you know, geez, with cloning, even our humanity in its essence is vulnerable or with AI, right? And Clara and the sun, you know, he's wondering about like, um, um, you know, which is about, you have these artificial friends, right? That's where it's like, you know, our notions of companionship and compassion, those have become vulnerable to technology. And so I think these things are really important the, what I'm trying to figure out and, um, it's it's scary. I don't think I'm going to come up with any answers, but that's definitely where I'm I'm going. And and you know what's really wonderful is like is that this I've been reading about this stuff for probably like eight months. and This is the most clearly I've yet articulated it to myself. So I'm really happy for the opportunity to talk about this. And I'd love to hear what you think about this. I mean, we're having a conversation. So tell me what what, what, what you what you um, say.
1: Well, I have one question about this, and then I do want to respect your time, um, but. I guess the question is, you know, as you were speaking, um, I'm so grateful that you shared, you know, your your next book, your what you're working on right now um, in its early stages with us. Um, but I was thinking about, you know, earlier you mentioned how when you were talking about sort of a people being turned into a population and as we were talking about the onslaught of all these sort of things in our lives, you know, we, you know, and I think about all the services that I subscribe to. I think about how often I'm on the internet. I'm thinking about all these sort of things data points on me about things that I don't even think of as data about me, right? How fast I look at something, how long I look at something, how much time I spend scrolling, what my search history, I think I'm just doing random things, but they get sort of categorized. And so I was thinking as you were speaking about whether or not, you know, in your book, um, sort of data is very much just sort of aligned with social and cultural categories that we use to um, communicate with each other about difference, right, across populations. But it seems to me as we go into this increasingly sort of technologically surveilled era that there might be a widening gap between the kinds of data that. of these companies are collecting and storing about us right and how that gets used to talk about population and then the kinds of kind of cultural war categories we have for discussing sort of populations on the ground and i don't know that that's true but it does seem to me like there there might be a breach there that could be interesting and i was just gonna gonna talk to you about what that means for the production of more population more populations right um and what it means if those population what anchors them at least for people were very powerful to surveil us and then sell our information. If, if, if primarily that, like, I don't know if that just sort of changes the game a little bit. But I know it sounded like as you were formulating those thoughts that you were kind of moving away from security, but that that's just the loose thing that popped into my mind as you were speaking. I was wondering, I was like, oh, snap, like all of this data is the most important thing that all of these little websites are scrubbing from me. Is it that I'm black? Like, I don't think it is. Um, it might be. But I don't, I don't know, and I just found that sort of intera- interesting that I might belong to a population that doesn't correspond to how I might be taken up socially and culturally in discourse. Um, I don't know.
0: Right, and it, I mean, isn't that the mismatch? And isn't that the um, plot? That mismatch that you get taken up in discourse by a um, op- you know, into a population or a net that you don't think you inhabit, right? I mean, that seems to me the plot of. Mm-hmm of enemy of the state right that's the plot of uh, (laughs) North by Northwest right you know so yeah it's it's a breach I mean I think I hear what you're saying because it's really interesting like what if you're feeding let's say we have this kind of older notion of the system if you're feeding the system um, unreliable data right your input is 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 the, the input that you're giving it is faulty and it's making false mm-hmm. conclusions about you, right? And but you know we you know within the um, cinematic and you know other forms of aesthetic imagination, when you don't match your data, that's also you know pretty highly problematic.
1: Yeah, I mean I don't know if I explain this right exactly how I'm thinking about it in my mind, but it's just like this idea that a bunch of data is being collected about us and about everyone, and that it might produce population categories that don't correspond to the social language sociological language we have to describe difference in our society and what that might mean for how we're dominated or exploited in the future. I think that's a, a bit dystopic how I was thinking. But I just I just wonder because I just don't even know. Like I watched these documentaries on Netflix about, you know, all the information that's being scrubbed from us constantly. And I'm like, I didn't even know that was a thing to be known.
0: Right. Right. You know, then you're on um very much, you know, um, I hate to say this, but you're on the, on the territory of like Donald Rumsfeld, right? You know, what are the, the known knowns, the known unknowns and the unknown unknowns, right? I mean, that's the kind of the thing that we're, we're, we're worried about. That. And I should say that one of the things that got me going on this book, and this is just maybe a, a good way to end, is that I watched Donald Rumsfeld's news conference, which when he proposed those three categories. And, you know, Rumsfeld, you know, it's interesting. He's kind of like, you know, any person who works for the state department or or, or this, the, the federal government, you know, he's, 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 uh, 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 he's, you know, trying to give information. There's a certain demeanor that he has, a certain seriousness, but when he gets to these three categories, when he gets to the last one, unknown unknowns, he's really giddy, right? He's excited. He's joyous. You know, he's, 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 he's it's, it's like he, he's fully caffeinated at that point because when he's thinking about unknown unknowns for him, it's, a limitless horizon right and 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 that's like the you know and that's like the continuous continuous governance and that's what he sees there so i just point that out as the as the flip side to what you were talking about right you know um you know what's unpredictable you know there's always a a push to make it predictable right to make it a population to make it a data set to understand how it's going to behave you know and really what's happening here is to strip things from you know, the, the, the strip the future from action, right? So the action becomes cap, you know, calculable. So that we don't have a condi- so we don't live in the conditional sense, right? I could do this or I could do that, you know, you know, data doesn't want that. Algorithms don't want that. They don't want to know what I could do. They want to know what I'm going to do, or they want me to do, you know, this thing, which is to buy, you know, more clothes from, you know, the internet or something like that. That's what they want me to do. And I do that and I comply. Right, so I think um, um, you know it's, it's it's a wide open field, and this is you know um, why it's going to be important but tough to continue thinking about it.
1: Well, awesome, I think we'll all look forward to your next project. Um, for now, what would you like to uh, leave our listeners with? What should they what should they know about American insecurity? Kind of last words. I think the last. They go words on, and buy it?
0: Yeah, yeah, I think the last words I would just want to say is that you know what I was doing there was really substituting, you know, the word, you know, in that title, American insecurity, uh, I was substituting, you know, using two words that shouldn't be there, right? You know, insecurity instead of democracy and insecurity instead of security. And I think I just want to ask people to think about, you know, in their lives, let's just kind of, can, do we need to recalibrate the relationship between security and democracy? We're not trying to get rid of security I am trying to have a little more
1: democracy, though. All right. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast.
0: Great. Thanks.